Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hola, socios. Hola, equipo. My name is Neil. I'm Liam. This is John Norberger from Kansas City, Missouri, USA. Maury Field near Brisbane in Queensland. Edinburgh. Barcelona. And I'm a socio. I'm a socio. I am a socio of The Big Interview. Hi, my name's Neil. I'm a socio of The Big Interview from Maury Field near Brisbane, in Queensland. My favourite episode of the last season was the one with Sir Les Ferdinand. I never realised that he'd actually played in Turkey at the start of his career. Every time I listen to an episode, I always learn something new. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Hello, I'm Neil White and this is the big interview at the World Cup. This show is the second of a two-parter. Q&As from our socios, our supporters trust over at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Yesterday, we dealt with the questions that referred to issues at the World Cup away from the Spanish national team. Today, we're going to return our focus onto Spain. Graham Hunter in Krasnodar, Russia. How are you today? Mm. Just finished my cream of mushroom soup. Having just interviewed Rodrigo. Fantastic kid. And Lucas Vasquez, really funny, really nice fella, keen to talk about football, really witty, always with a smile on his face, as does Rodrigo, to be honest with you. So even though um, this is tiring, it's sometimes repetitive, it's raining, the, the optimism should be high, and I should say to you, Neil, I'm a very privileged boy. I'm a happy man. So just very, very briefly, I know that every day is different, and it does sound from the conversation I have with you that you're working very long, very hard days. But in general, a day like this, is it interviews in the morning, training in the afternoon and evening? The idea, no varies, Neil. It's largely set by things like, I don't think Fernando Hierro's unusual in this. Coaches tend to like to train at a similar time to when they're going to play the game. So the game in Kaliningrad against Morocco kicks off at nine o'clock at night. Therefore, it has tended to be nighttime training sessions. And this one uh, this evening is closed to all media. But, for example, there's little variations in that the players, the Spain players this morning, had the choice of whether they went to do a gym session or not. The, the gym was open, there was some you know, drinks and uh, routines prepared, but it was entirely up to players. And, for example, the day after the game in Kazan, it was as usual as I, I remember first beginning to explain about the Luis Aragonés era. Iker Casillas always trained the day after. Or almost none of the other first-team players did that. He always did. The pattern now is that, so far at least, none of the first-team players go out the next day. So sometimes you'll see a full session, sometimes a half session. Again, heat is a big factor. It was well over 90 degrees uh, yesterday. In the Not in the midday, midday sun, but even in the mid-afternoon sun. It's not feasible that you, you do full sessions. The variance is to do with... Um, the rhythm of training, who's played the night before, what time the next game is, what the heat is, what the temperature is like. They're changing pitches to keep the pitches that they train on pristine. So sometimes they'll do 15 minutes in front of us on pitch one, pitch A, and then they'll nick off when we leave 
They'll nick off to do strategic work. Um, the type of strategy we saw coming to fruition, as I mentioned, for um, Silva, Busquets, Costa for goal two against Portugal. And for that lovely little routine when the, the ball was taken as a corner against uh, Iran along the line. Goal. Wasn't it sweet? And it laid back. And you kind of thought as Sergio Ramos, I'm certain it was him, went to pull the trigger. This is a goal. And it was really well worked out. So I think we're seeing a, a, a Spain training set up that is certainly a little bit more about a clever strategy, tricking the opposition. It goes back to, I can't remember when I spoke to Sergio Ramos. I think before the first game, and it was Portugal, of course, so I said, listen, your history against Portugal is that you famously chipped the keeper in the European Championship semi-final in, I'm sure it was Donetsk. I said, you know, if you got a penalty today, do you fancy chipping it? He said, nah, too well known. I've got something else up my sleeve. So let's hope that's the theme. Spain have something else up their sleeve. OK, and just before we get to the socios questions, you mentioned speaking to Rodrigo there. That's an interesting one because on the eve of the managerial change, he must have fancied his chances to be the starting striker for Spain at the World Cup. And then suddenly he's not, we've not even seen him across two games. How's he holding up? I think you're right. I think that there was an idea that as successful as Diego Costa had been in qualification, I think with five goals, Rodrigo's season had given him maybe, you know, a millimetre edge in that he's grown up with Lopetegui as his coach. He's won the European Championship with him. He was chosen ahead of Morata, which was a big, big decision for Lopetegui. I know that Chelsea fans might moan and groan, or those who partially watched Morata and didn't pay attention to the fact that he had a very serious back injury and then tried to play through the back injury to improve his season, thus making things worse. To leave Morata behind was a very big decision, and therefore you could, you could easily mount an argument like you did that Rodrigo must have thought that ahead of the Portugal game, particularly him having scored um, for Spain against Germany in one of the build-up friendlies in, in late spring, that there was a chance that this guy uh, would begin. Now, it was the very theme of the interview today. I talked about like the idea that in, in 2010... Uh, Vincente Del Bosque, from whom I got a very nice text this morning saying, um, I hope that the, the guy with no socks is looking after Fernando Hierro. He's a great friend of mine, and let's hope you both have a good World Cup together, which I thought was really nice. But I mentioned to Rodrigo that in 2010, uh, famous, I'm pretty sure it was Pretoria, when <laughs> Del Bosque said to me, so what was it like over here under um, apartheid? I was like, hold on a second. You, you got confused about where I come from. And that was the point at, at which... Fabregas and um, Piquet come out of the press conference and he hollers them, here, here, come and speak to somebody who knows about football, which is very funny indeed. So I said to him that in that interview, Dabosque had told me, Cesc está cabreado conmigo. Cesc is, is fucked off with me. <laughs> and Dabosque said, and with good reason, because he's one of those players who for his club doesn't know where the bench is, but I'm, I'm not using him very much. So I asked Cesc about it and he said, look, my big deal is to be ready. When the moment comes, be ready. Now, he stayed a bit knocked and, and got very little significant game time until the final, when in the second period of extra time, with Heitinger sent off, when the ball breaks down from Fernando Torres' cross, and I'm pretty sure that Van der Vaart, who's acting as stand-in centre-half for Heitinger, slips. It's Sesc who pounces on the ball, sets off the beautiful assist pass for Iniesta, and lo and behold, Spain are world champions. So I was asking Rodrigo about that, and he talked about how easy it is to stay ready in a situation like this, where he's made his World Cup debut because he had a minute, a minute of natural time against Iran. A minute, a minute, and then, you know, on loose change. And he knows that 
he's through the best season of his life, his best scoring season, his best his best performance ever. And therefore, you know, he's got one, you know, truly special season behind him and several beginning to show his, his promise. And I pointed out to him that it's a long, long time since any side came to the World Cup with their coach and a potentially starting centre-forward sharing a Bolton Wanderers background. And he said he, he loved that. And he admitted the fact that Bolton Wanderers has been an absolute treasure for him in terms of preparing him for the, the tough professional world, making him change completely as a person, um, learn new disciplines, uh, demand more of himself. And therefore, he thought it was really funny that, that Hierro and he were, were Bolton Wanderers for Spain in Russia. And I'd have to say he, he was funny. And I said to him, look, I'm sorry, mate, I'm, I'm going to be... I'm really apologetic that I'm going to have to be asking you all about the guy who's keeping you out of the team because Costa is the man. And journalistically, that's what we want to know. And he was like, no bother, let's, let's bring it on. And we had a good laugh about Diego and a good chat. So he's bearing up fine. If he's called upon, he'll be ready, Neil, I think. Great. Can't believe the Bolton Wanderers content that we're getting through during these World Cup podcasts. It makes me think about potential big interview targets for the new season. It makes me think about Phoenix Knights, the minibus of Bolton fans turning up and Peter Kay going, are they small off or away? Brilliant. We're bolting, we're crazy, we're on the piss tonight. Anyway. This one comes from Daniel Hanna, and actually there is a, there is a thread to between this question and, and our previous conversation. Hi Graham, what's Thiago like off the pitch? I've been a long admirer of his ability since watching him come through the ranks at FC Barcelona. I've noticed his dad and brother are in Rio watching the tournament. Does he get their full backing, given they're Brazilian? How's his relationship with his cousin, Rodrigo, in the camp? I find the whole family dynamic really intriguing. So much talent. You were his neighbour for a while. Could you tell us a bit more about their background? Yeah, no, I can, uh, Daniel. I really love your question because it brings into play all the themes that I think are genuinely really interesting above and beyond the simple fact of being at a World Cup. So, for example, Thiago has turned into a very uh, bright, very self-possessed, articulate guy with a good sense of humour. For example, he speaks very good English. For example, two years ago, when the Brexit vote came through, um, Tiago was the first one to come to me behind the sort of main press conference stage to say, what has your country done? What, what's happened? Why, why have you separated from Europe? And I was about to go, wait, wait, but don't you know? He said, I know you're Scottish and I know Scotland voted against it. Now, tell me truthfully, Daniel, which international class footballer at a European Championship would you expect to have the first question of the day from to you, to me, to, to Neil, or whichever report was there about, like, what the hell have you done with Brexit? So he follows the news, we can be sure of that. And um, I've not asked Tiago about Rodrigo, but we have spoken to Rodrigo earlier in this tournament about the whole idea, about a family member being here, and he pointed out that they played together as kids, they lived very near each other as kids, and therefore they didn't just grow up as cousins, but as chums. And, you know, they would play World Cup games, they would dream, and he said... For us to both be at a World Cup here uh, together, he said, is is unbelievable. It's emotional. It's great for our family. And they do come from, you know, a lineage whereby Massinho won the World Cup in 94 as, as an organising, clever, Casemiro-style um, midfielder for Brazil in that 94 team. And, you know, I, I, would, I would have pointed out that although Rafinha chose to play for Brazil, I don't think it was necessarily... Um, Automatic, there is no other idea choice. And, you know, Thiago could have, by birth, played for Italy, by parentage for Brazil. So they've each had to think through their choices. 
And I said before, um, I'm pretty sure that Tiago has pretty much sat whenever we've been on buses together or planes together with Alba, Busquets, Iniesta, as if, you know, he might yearn to be back amongst the people with whom he grew up and, and with whom he learned to play football. So I, I like the family. Massinho was a good neighbour, as was Thiago and Rafinha. I, I wish Rafinha was playing more high-level football. He, he will prove himself to be a very good, very dynamic, very clever footballer, I believe. I think that his impact at Inter, who are now struggling to find the money to pay for his fee, his impact at Inter could have been very high if I were Barca and he were not able to complete the move to Inter. I would be reintegrating him in that team instantly. Bright family, nice family. And I said to Rodrigo today, you know, one of the characteristics isn't just that you, you know, play for a Champions League team that qualified Valencia for top four this season or that you're talented or that you're reasonably wealthy or that you're here with Spain. You've got really good football intelligence as a family. That's a common theme. And uh, he went on in the interview to prove that to be the case. Likeable family, really well-educated, nice people to a fault, decent to be around, fun to be around, friendly, respectful, and bloody talented, a lot of them. I really hope that we see more of Thiago at this World Cup. I just thought his cameo against Portugal, maybe slightly more than a cameo, really changed the gear um, in the Spanish midfield. Okay, still to come after the break, a little bit of Slavan Bilic, a lot of Busquets, and a little bit about Graham Hunter's next book. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Okay, welcome back. Who's next? Richard Walker. Evening, gents. Uh, loving the podcasts at the minute. It's, it's really good to get a nice perspective on another country's World Cup in depth. Sort of gives you a holiday from uh, the inevitable disappointment that is uh, bound to be England's World Cup campaign. Just wanted to really get your take on how Spain had played. Slavin Bilic, in his analysis on ITV, accused them of overplaying and maybe being a little bit guilty of, of trying to pass the ball into the net. Uh, he highlighted, uh, I think, Jordi Alba for doing too many tricks and flicks when he said they didn't have the game won. So I wondered what your take on that was. Were they overplaying it? Could they have done more to force the issue earlier? Look, Richard, Slavin reaches a point where sometimes he gets impatient. We saw it when Neil and I were in Germany for West Ham's pre-season last August. And um, he'll definitely uh, try and cut you off if he's got something contrary to say. And that's his style of banter, and I enjoy it. I go further. If if he thought that that was a Spain performance where they were over elaborate, I'm not going to outright argue with him because I came off that game frustrated too. And what I definitely wanted them to do was to risk the one-on-one, you know, the killer pass, risk shooting more often, and and take a risk at, at being counterattacked. I thought that the gains were going to be higher than the potential losses. If Slavin was saying that this was deliberately over elaborate that they were like, for example Rodrigo used a, f- a phrase to me uh, today about 
<laughs> he made it. It's, it's like they use over-chewing your food as a way of um, talking about the manner of play that if you, if you try and be over-elaborate, what you actually allow, unless you've got geniuses on the ball, is the opponent to get, you know, sorted in order, bodies behind the ball, and the whole idea of playing around can only work if your positional football is good. The possession is successful for the era we've watched of Barcelona and Spain when the positional play is good and that the passing is brilliant and play, opponent players are dragged out of position and eventually a gap arrives. Now, whenever you play that style, if you're not a fan of it and the gap doesn't arrive and the goal doesn't come, then people can be frustrated. And if Slavin's point was that Spain were a little bit frustrating against Iran, then I can buy it. What the players have said unequivocally was that they think that they produced a pretty good performance, that the 20 minutes after, after halftime was their peak, after which they probably overcomplicated their lives. However, they think that Iran were much better than, than television or you know, in the stadium stand viewers c- could work out. That Iran were bigger than Spain, that they were quicker than Spain, that they were aggressive, that they were time-wasting, and that they broke up the rhythm of the game deliberately to try and not let Spain go pass, 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 chance goal. Now, Slavin may be right, having been a top-level professional footballer and a good coach, it might be that what Spain were lacking was a little bit more crispness or a little bit more daring, and on that point I would agree with him. In terms of whether the whole thorny question about Iran, and, and this helps us going forward, is if, if we've misinterpreted it and, and Iran were actually quite good, then, you know, Spain's performance wasn't drastic and it doesn't mean that they're not going to go further in the tournament. If we're listening to Spain players who are actually covering up for the type of deficiencies that Slavin's identifying, then Spain have got their work cut out to, to, to make a significant impact in the tournament because at a time when each of them is talking about wanting to win it, you know how sometimes footballers and coaches will shy away from the, the W word? You know, win the final, win the tournament. They're all quite happy to say, we're here to win and we believe we can. Now, not playing like that. So the factor is, how, how good was Slavin Bilic's reading? Was it more to do with Spain and over-elaborateness? Or was it to do with the fact that Iran were actually very robust, very tricksy, pretty streetwise and pretty frustrating? I don't have a definitive answer, but I certainly coincide with Slavin that Spain need to take more risks and have a bit of mala leche. When they had Puyol and Alonso and Sesk and Villa in the team, this mala leche, this sort of edge, a bit of nastiness, a bit of toughness, these aren't wimps, but that just difference between guys who will stand on your foot a little bit, who will con the referee a little bit, who will do whatever it takes to win... I think this side is a little bit less of that and maybe every side that wins the World Cup has just a millimetre or two more of it. How about that as a concept? Not bad. And speaking of Malalecce, here's one from Athan Sokolis. Hi, Graham. What is Busquets like off the pitch? He doesn't have any social media and seems to keep a low profile. What can you tell us? Athan, I can tell you that that's very deliberate on his part. He's really got no interest whatsoever in marketing, in brands, in advertising, in conversing with other people about football, unless they are a small minority of journalists or his fellow players. It's infamous that, you know, he snapped at me once. But that aside, in now knowing him for eight, ten years, 
We got on very well. He's happy to talk about football. In fact, he enjoys talking about football. I had one particularly good interview with him where he talked about the joy of scoring goals and how if life had been fairer to him, he'd have been a striker. Not because he doesn't like controlling the midfield, but because he says the greatest thing you can possibly do in a game of football isn't a great pass or a win, it's score a goal. He's tough. Uh, there's no question that he's tough-minded. He's obdurate. He will not easily um, change his mind if his idea is no or if he doesn't like a person or if he doesn't like a concept. Off the pitch, however, he's polite, affable, uh, quick to smile. Now that Chavi's not in the same team as him anymore, obviously he's not spending as much time with the maestro, but he is kind of off the pitch, locked at the hip to Alba and Iniesta. And the strange thing was, certainly, I've not seen it so much this tournament, but two years ago in France, he and Diego Costa found each other immensely enjoyable company. They really were sort of guffawing and mucking about together, which, given their personalities, ultra-competitive, given the, the two different sort of brands of Spanish football that they represent, to me seemed a little bit of an odd couple. And I'm not just giving you Walt Disney story, everybody's great all the time, everybody's nice. When Busquets felt attacked by the media after the Switzerland game and I saw him after the Honduras win and I was in a privileged position where the rest of the media weren't at, but I was mic'd up. And I said to him, listen, can we, can we have a chat about this game? He was like, why do you always ask me? Is it because I'm always nice to you? Is it, you know, what is it that I've got to do to, you know, to be left alone? And, I, and we made out afterwards, but I had little idea that he was really pissed off that the Spanish media had attacked him after the Switzerland game and he, he bit my head off. So... You know, I'm not trying to sell you smoke and say it's all kissy, lovey-dovey. That's not true. What he is is intelligent, friendly, affable, and particularly if you're talking about football, you know, he'll talk to you for an hour or so without a problem. OK, who's next? Hi, Graham. This is Peter Gordon from Singapore. Do you think that even though Diego Costa is scoring all of Spain's goals right now, that it's despite their system rather than being indoctrinated into the system? Peter, great question. And um, one that I spent all of today asking to two of his teammates. I found it really stark in, in Brazil that Diego Costa was not re- ready on any level. Number one, he could not figure out the pattern set by Xavi Iniesta, Busquets, Alonso and Sesc. Not in training, not in the matches. Secondly, in Brazil, the fact that he'd had two damaging hamstring injuries in the build-up to the... World Cup final and the Champions League final was very, very debilitating for him. And finally, in terms of mentality, he definitely was just a big, happy, easy-go-lucky Baloo the Bear. He, he wasn't taking either the importance of Spain defending their title or the abuse he was getting from the Brazil fans in the stadia anywhere like serious enough. The things that have changed are that he's definitely matured a great deal as a footballer. Secondly, there has been a slight change of, you used the word indoctrination, I like it, but the, the, the fact that Busquets will serve him up his first goal against Portugal with a long ball um, is something that just wouldn't have happened before. The little swivel where Iniesta takes a ball that Silva gives him short, wins a tackle, and just gives a slide rule pass for Diego Costa to roulette turn on to, that was against Iran. That's much more within the repertoire that each of them that's a blending, I think, is what you're fishing for. It's a blending of two styles. The other one where the strategy leaves Busquets hitting the ball back for a tap-in on the line is what any attentive striker will score. 
I, I think we've yet to understand fully whether there's a complete agreement between Costa and the midfield about how he wants the ball. But I'll tell you something that um, Lucas used a good phrase to me today about how Costa's learned a, a bit more patience about when he's going to get the ball, when he should look to get the ball, i.e. timing of runs, when he's got to work a defence because he knows that the ball's not going to come to him. And therefore, I think there has been a movement on both sides. Every player here who either watched 2014, 2016 or participated in those tournaments will tell you that the change in, in idea between then and now is not great, not huge. And therefore, Spain has probably moved a little bit less towards Costa than Costa has moved towards Spain. And patently, it has helped him winning trophies with Chelsea, winning a trophy on his return with Atletico Madrid. He's a lot more confident, a lot more serious in the pitch. So far, Touchwood, a, a lot less belligerent in terms of getting himself booked or sent off. There was a real moment, you probably saw, where he sent Sergio Ramos away when the Iran keeper claimed that he'd stamped his foot off when it was just a little tap and he, he handled the referee, calmed it down. So there's been movement on both sides. I'd honestly say that there's been a learning process and, and maybe that's not that surprising given that Costa's style is so individual, so belligerent, not unique but pretty old-fashioned and it, it works with a system at Atleti which is you know noticeably different from Spain's. But Spain now no longer has Cesc and Xavi and Xavi Alonso and as such Maybe the timing is perfect. That minor move by both sides has left him a little bit more prolific. OK, we have one more question. This from Nick Taylor. Thanks, Nick. Do Spain have to win this tournament for there to be a sequel to the excellent Spain book? I'd love to read more of behind-the-scenes stories, not just from this tournament, but the disaster in Brazil as well. Tell your friends. If everybody writes in in their thousands, then, yeah, we'll, I'll write that book. I took huge uh, joy about writing the Spain book about those three tournaments, not because of the trophy lifts so much, but because it's unusual to get such a patchwork of access, either long training sessions, um, travel with the team, laughs with the team, players and coaches and staff subsequently to the tournament explaining things with such colour and verve and enthusiasm. And the glory moment counts. You know, books about teams who've done well but not won don't tend to be that interesting or sell so well. I don't know about updates, but um, you can talk to me again of Spain by some minor miracle win this tournament. Then we can talk again about a follow-up or a separate book about From Disaster to Triumph. You know, Spain, the Bolton Wanderers story, something like that is, is a title that's in my mind already, <laughs> obviously. Um, Nat Lofthouse, Where Are You Now? You know, writing books uh, is something that I've found hard, I have to admit. I've said it before. But that second one, I, I enjoyed the production of more. I'm really pleased that you liked reading it. But I think the, the key thing is that this, isn't, this has been an interesting bunch of people. I, I probably the more that you ask me the question, the more that these podcasts force me to think. I wonder if the, if the level of character is quite the same as it was with Marchena and Capdevila and Iker and Xavi and Xavi Alonso. And I'm forced to admit that Perhaps not. Maybe that's just because this group, particularly the newer ones, is just that little bit younger than when Spain were at their absolute peak. That might be all it is. But I go back to saying that it wasn't just because Spain lifted those three trophies. It was that they were colourful, they were energetic, they were open, and they loved football 
as much as I do, and they, and they were willing to share, and they were funny, and there was music, and there was tricks, and Aragonese is one of the all-time characters of European football. It's that mad mix of things came together to make it an interesting project, and um, certainly Brazil was an interesting project, shorter, more depressing, and so far this has been fun. So let's put that book decision on the back burner for the moment, and probably Neil and Martin will have a word to say about it anyway. Nick, will come back to it. And if you are listening to this podcast and have not read... Graham Hunter's book about Spain's triumphs at those three tournaments, I guarantee you it will make your summer better. But for now, that's our show, guys. Let us know what you think. If you're a social at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter, those guys get hours of extra content and the chance to take part in the show. You guys can get in touch with us on Patreon. The rest of you can reach out on Twitter at GHpodcast. Either way, if there's something you want to ask Graham or if there's an issue that you think would make a good episode of this podcast, do let us know. And please drop us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Graham Hunter, thank you as ever. Pajalst and dosvidanya. Dosvidanya. I really hope you're enjoying these World Cup shows. We've got huge plans for next season, but we do need your help to make them happen. Go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to become a socio, a member, to join us, to support us. You'll get an extra big interview every month, plus lots of other bonus content. Last season, our members got nine exclusive big interviews, including Rafa van der Vaart, Troy Dini, and Roberto Di Matteo. So go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Do it now, please. <laughs>